one time a bunch of my friends went down to this high school and two cars pulled up and didn't let the other car out. It was stuck on a bridge in East LA, got out with bats, broke all the windows, took up, beat up the kids, took off. As we were driving away, this one kid shoots at the back window, blows it out. Bullet gets lodged on the top, like probably two inches from my head. And then shoots a side door. And as I'm driving away in a little Mitsubishi Tradia L, this other kid just jumps on on the side of the door outside and we just drive away. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. Does it matter how badly you got beaten badly? Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go through that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. A few inches down, and he would have been dead in the front seat of his mom's Mitsubishi. Yet as Raul weaved in and out of traffic towards his future, untouched and laughing, it seemed like it was just another day in 1990s Los Angeles. Flash forward to the present, and Raul Balthazar is still in LA. And now he's an established painter and performing artist working to understand the experiences of mestizo and Mesoamerican indigenous communities. With exhibitions held in LA, Mexico, Taiwan, Vienna, and Australia, Raul's exploration of post-colonialism and trauma responses has earned him international acclaim over the past decade. But before he ever went to art school or joined a drag show at the Navy, Raul found his love for art in his hometown. Whether he was going to school or merely walking with his friends, El Serino's Chicano murals stood out from every wall, telling a story of past resistance. Can you just like take me back to some of your earliest memories growing up around LA? What comes to mind is walking to school and it was just this little beautiful oasis of a little trail. So I remember uh, walking a, a lot and running into these big uh, Chicano power murals. It's always very interesting to me. What are those? Chicano artists would paint murals of of empowerment throughout different neighborhoods. So I remember a brown fist, you know, up in the air, and a Mexican revolutionary Tweety Bird with two handguns pointed at you. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it was iconography that you know that you just kind of grew up with and then later on you might even I, I don't know I, I went through this whole phase of uh, I would say like media indoctrination and and uh, and like a stage of colonization where you're made to feel ashamed of your own culture trying to fit into a bigger culture how do you think that you were ashamed I think through television you know like you did exist in the media even though when you looked around you were the majority of people everywhere and then you turn on the tv and it's like you're you're not shown there and then when you are it's in these subservient 
figures, you know, that, that you're embarrassed by, you know, and then there's also this language barrier. So my parents had an accent. I would notice this tone that English speakers would use towards them. That was very microaggressive, you could say. And then it was also us doing it to ourselves. Because there was a bunch of kids in that grammar school, in a Catholic school, like trying to assimilate into this culture in whatever ways we did. Yeah. How did you start to just push back against it? Yeah, I was always uh, a little irreverent trickster, I would say, as a kid. Like our whole, the fun thing we would love to do is, of course, like uh, we would sign the, put a little number on the spine of the book. And then as we handed out the religion books in the beginning of religious religion class, um, you know, you'd hand them out to like, you know, the, the most innocent little boys and girls. And then you'd tell them, hey, turn the page, you know, 25 or what have you, when they would open it up. Like their reaction was just golden and you <laughs> You know, the the ones who were in on the joke would just bust out laughing and it was always just a, a, it was just hilarious. But I think once again, it, it was the defiance or just joking around in church or like you're watching the adults, you know, like going through this whole thing. You know, so often you would just feel like, oh, they're being so sectimonious or like, uh, or hypocritical because you'd see the way they would act outside of church. And so I would always think of like, how you'd have these pre-conscribed areas for people to act accordingly and to act according, you know, according to the rules of that space for this ritual. And sometimes they were mon like mundane rituals, you know, but to me, that was always very interesting. Was art arising and coming up in other areas of your life? Like, was it something that you knew you were interested in from an early age? When it came to the artwork, like, you know, with the capital A kind of stuff, like, the only thing I remember seeing was a lot of, like, kind of Catholic art, paintings inside churches or the school. Um, and little by little, I would get exposed to uh oh, well they had like my parents had like the blue boy you know which is a famous painting at the Huntington Library image yeah you had the, the murals everywhere uh you had the uh, gang graffiti you know a lot of cholo graffiti around you know the the neighborhood and uh you know when when we would venture out you know outside of you know El Sereno area Going to the west side, of course, you would see like different types of artwork as well. Or as kids, you go on field trips to a museum, you know. So that that was definitely something. But then there was also like the beginnings of like hip hop culture, BMX culture, skating. Yeah, like what what scenes were you entering into? Well, see, that was the thing at that time. Most kids were getting into hip hop, and um. I tried it for a bit, and then I, I just, you know, I didn't have any coordination to be breakdowns, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and the music was cool, but then I just started going um, and gravitating more towards, like, new wave and punk rock and goth kind of a scenes. And I think it was also about, like, trying to check out, like, what the white kids are doing. 
in Pasadena, you know. And so, yeah, you know, when I started going into towards high school, like, that's what I wanted to check out more than, for example, going into South Central, like, with the hip-hop scene and all that. Because it was also um, a lot more violent, you know, as well. And especially if you were an outsider going into those neighborhoods. What was South Central like around that time? Because that's what, like, between, like, 86 and 90? Yeah, you had um, definitely a lot, of, a lot of gang warfare going on. You had also like um, a lot of fighting between black and brown cultures because uh, a lot of Latino people were moving into those neighborhoods that were predominantly black. And then you had, um, you know, a lot of police violence. You had a lot of crack, cocaine, and you also had. This weird time that I don't think it's like that anymore, where it's like you had to be hardcore into something. If not, you were a wannabe and you were going to get your ass kicked. Like if you were into this type of music, you had to have long hair. If you didn't have long hair, you got your ass kicked. You know, you had to have like a shaved head if you were in this other scene, you know, if you're a skinhead or even if you were a sharp, which is skinheads against racial prejudice, you know, like. They had their own scenes. And so there was always getting jumped, always fighting. Like, it's a super violent time. Did you ever get caught up in that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I got, uh... see, during high school, we created a bunch of promoter groups in Northeast LA. And um, a lot of that was uh, throwing house parties. And we would create flyers. We would charge to get in. We would charge for beer. We would. You know, have DJs, and you have a bunch of drunk kids. Some, uh, if you would do a party in a certain neighborhood, and the gang, if it was a gang's area, they would expect to be let in for free, and to come in, and so that would change the vibe. Or if you got into a fight, or picked up on, you know, some guy's girl, or whatever, there was beef, like. There would be a fight later on. So every time you went to a party, there was going to be a fight. And so it came to a point where kids were starting to carry knives and bats or even guns to these parties, knowing that there was going to be something that's, that was going to happen later on. Do you remember like a specific party that you went to where like, you're like, oh crap, like this is like real. One time, a bunch of my friends went down to this high school and two cars pulled up and didn't let the other car out. It was stuck on a bridge in East LA, got out with bats, broke all the windows, took up, beat up the kids, took off. As we were driving away, this one kid shoots at the back window, blows it out, bullet gets lodged on the top, like probably two inches from my head. And then shoots a side door. And as I'm driving away in a little Mitsubishi Tradia L, the, this other kid just jumps on the, on the side of the door outside. And we just drive away. I had to leave L.A. because some kids passed by my my house, uh, not my house, my friend's house and, and did a drive by. They shot up the house thinking it was my house. I felt like uh, I'm tired of hanging out with the same people, doing the same things that are just, you know, I got arrested. How did you get arrested? 
basically we were, we were just a bunch of drunk kids partying at what we called the lake, which was in Elysian Park. It was the last day of school, junior year. I had just been elected senior class president. There was about 60 to 70 kids. I went to an all-boys high school. A bunch of girls would come and party with us, you know, from different high schools. And one group of them left, so we decided to follow them. And when we pulled up to them, we were to tell them, come back, come back, you know. And they were like, no, we got to go, we got to go. And these guys were following them that were also from a neighboring high school. And so my friend takes out a fire extinguisher and he shoots it, gets all over the girls. And they didn't think it was very funny. So we make a U-turn going about 60 miles an hour on Stadium Way. And the guys that were following them turn around and decide to uh, follow us. And they pull up to where all of us are and... One of them was like, who did that? We're going to kick your ass. So one kid decides to uh, fight my friend. My friend was pretty tough. He like puts down his knife and his gun and he's like, let's go, you know, you and me one-on-one. And he's like, uh, I I don't want to fight you, dude. Like, it's cool. Like, I want to fight him. And he points at me. I like, you know, I I put up my dukes. (laughs) People are like, oh my God, he's going to get his ass kicked. But my dad was a boxer, so he trained me. And as soon as he lunged, like, to try to punch me, I, I got his sweatshirt, pulled it over his head, pushed him back into the car, and kicked him in the face. And so at that point, like, they pulled me away from him, and they, they held me up, like, chariots of fire or something. And they were like, yeah, that was, like, king for a day, right? Wow. So anyhow, those kids leave. We're partying it up, drinking like crazy get thrown out of that park. We go to another park in Highland Park, party down there, drinking. Those kids go call their friends and they come back and they bring back like a whole caravan of other kids, man. And they start going at it. They punch my friend Tony's nose, break his nose, have a fight. They jump back in their car, they take off, they drive up to Wilson High School in El Cerrito. We chase him. My friend Tony can't drive because his nose is broken. My other friend is trying to drive a stick shift, but he doesn't know how to drive a stick shift, so he's grinding all the gears. We finally get up to the football field. They run into the football field because all the football players are having practice. <laughs> so we get off, get a crowbar, and start breaking all their windows as they run into the field. And then we take off. At this time, they call the cops. We park the car. I run into these apartments to hide. And then, like, the cops, like, start, you know, standing out. Come out, put your hands up, da-da-da. So I come out, and I have all these scratches on my arm. But it was because I had been in that fight, and I was punching the guy, I guess, in the head, you know, and was scraping my, my wrist on the asphalt. But they thought it was the windows from the car, but I didn't do that. So anyhow, I got arrested. And I, I ended up getting away with it because my dad knew one of the cops. And I was like, oh, shit, you might want to leave me in the jail cell because I don't know what my dad's going to shoot to me. <laughs> my dad didn't play. He was a boxer and a marathoner, so I couldn't kick his ass and I couldn't run away from him. So, yeah, those are some high school stories. So that, that's kind of like the situation that I was growing up in at the time. Very L.A. How you describe it, it sounds almost like you're having fun and kids pulling pranks on other kids. But, like, you could really seriously injure someone. You could kill someone. You could 
get arrested. You could get prosecuted. Like kids enacting things with real stakes, which is a stressful environment, I imagine, that you were in. And we were the private school kids. We were the middle class kids at that. So was it like different for the other kids? Well, yeah, the kids that didn't have parents that could afford parents, period, or parents to afford going to private schools, they got into worse trouble. They got into the hardcore gangs with the guns, and, like, it got way deeper. So we still had that buffer, right, and still got into that trouble just because of the culture of the time. So it's really amazing. So how did you get out of it, I guess, like, move away from that culture and into something else? Well, of course, I I went into an even more violent culture, which was the U.S. Navy. (laughs) That was the military industrial complex, the Empire. Why? Because at that time, you know, so this whole thing that I was telling you about, this kind of stemmed from late high school into early kind of community college. I went to Pasadena City College after that. And so I was still doing the same thing. And uh, I was getting more politicized. I was going to, you know, I was taking art courses. And so I was very, like, politically conscious as an artist. But at the same time, I felt like um, I couldn't really take myself seriously if I didn't have a worldly experience that was outside of my neighborhood. I figured... You know, the only ways I could get out to actually move out of my house was to get accepted into a university or to go to uh, the military. And I applied to CalArts. I didn't make it. And so I figured, well, I think I'm going to join the Navy. Before you knew it, I was uh, signed up and ready to go at the end of summer. And then uh, in early 1991, I left to Great Lakes, Michigan for boot camp. And that was a trip because it, that's what I really felt like this whole thing of like, oh, you're a minority or like, oh, we got ourselves a little Mexican hard worker. Is that what people said? Yeah, I remember uh, when I got to my ship, they were like, oh, we got ourselves a beater. You know, like, all right, like, guys work hard. We love you guys. And it's like, okay. This is going to be a long two-year enlistment. What was it like, like in the, like the, I guess, base environments in that area? Well, at that time, that's when I was really into uh, Trelus Lautrec, who would do a lot of drawings of bar scenes. And so when I was told that I, w- I would be entering Sin City, I was very uh, intrigued by that. What does that mean? Well, it was uh, the Philippines, Subic Bay, where you just had all these bars and brothels and just like drunken marines and sailors fighting. And So what was it actually like? Like when you were sitting in these bars in the Philippines, what were you drawing? I was drawing a lot of the shows that they were doing. I was drawing interactions with myself and other sailors. Drawing the Im- imperialism as it's happening. And also how I'm I'm also complicit in it, where I'm the oppressor and the oppressed at the same time. That consciousness started opening to me. I became more of a complex character, and I kind of saw like the nuances of what it is to be an American. It was very interesting. 
also just uh the shellback ceremony to me was very impactful yeah what is that it's when you cross the equator when you cross the equator all of a sudden i was told that there would be a beauty contest every division would have a contestant so you would have like this drag show with a with a beauty contest and then an obstacle course where you had to go through all this food that had been saved for over a month and you had to crawl through it because you were a polywog and you didn't have legs yet after you crawled through the course you would have to eat a cherry that was dipped in garlic and that was in this fat guy's belly button i know this sounds insane but this is reality once you ate it you would have to say like i'm a shellback or something like that i forgot been many years and everyone was like cheering Wah! you know it's like really festival so odd it's but it's like the mardi gras you know is that something that you would draw and capture with your art i i didn't draw it but i was so present and a part of it and that really has influenced me that that to me is my base for performance art you know from the the catholic rituals to the naval you know, uh, experience and things like that shellback ceremony. So like, as you're finishing up your Navy experience, what are you thinking you want to do next? Like, how are you thinking about your life and why do you end up leaving? Well, I, at that time I knew I was an artist. I was already a practicing artist. Uh, I wanted to finish up my two years because I, I did a two year program. I was just very tired of following orders all the time and living this duplicity. I was ready to move on to my next, you know, phase of life. So that you know, what once I once I finished up my time there, I moved back to LA and I started uh organizing and doing art shows at a space called the Generacion. And this was, uh, what was interesting was that uh, this guy, Tim Schiele, uh, or Schiele, uh, he shows me this cassette of Rage Against the Machine. And I was like, this guy's talking about 2020 vision and murals with metaphors. Like, what? And so I look at the names and it's Beto de la Rocha or Zach de la Rocha. But I knew his father, Beto de la Rocha, was a famous uh, Chicano artist. And so when I went to Hyde Park, I talked to him and he told me that his son was living in Highland Park. And this is in the midst of the height of Rage Against the Machine. And so uh, I went to go talk to him because I was very inspired by the work he was doing. What did he say? About a month later, he told me that a room opened up. And so I moved in with him. No way. Yeah, so I lived there for about two years with him and this other guy. Because that's like, I mean, like, that's kind of, you're, you're at the, like, source of uh, culture, almost, right? Where it's like, like, Rage of the Machine was one of the bands that, like, defined a culture. And so being so close to that um, and being an artist yourself, like, what was it like? being so entrenched in that environment well uh zach was very well read very cultured like very like knew the best of music and movies and, and talented so 
it was amazing to just be a witness to that at the same time, knowing that I was there to uh, organize artists and kind of using those party promotion skills once again, but this time, you know, going back to these neighborhoods and, and also uh, politicizing people at the same time as we're uh, making art events and cross-pollinating with uh, performance artists and musicians and poets. So it was about gathering people and trying to organize. At that time, the Zapatistas revolted. So that was another mind-blowing event. Yeah, can you tell me about that? Zapatistas organized in a clandestine manner in Chiapas and took over, you know, the main government building there and impacted the world with a type of consciousness because they were also, like, using the laws of the United Nations and, you know, the indigeneity you know, whatever weapons were available, but knowing that the weapons were also more of metaphors, being open to all ethnicities, you know, trying to create a world where many worlds fit. Where were you when you were living with um, Zach De La Rocha? Uh, this was in Highland Park. All of the, the stuff with uh, the revolution uh, in uh, Zapatistas, that was in, in happening in Mexico? That was happening in Chiapas, but it affected all of Mexico and the world. So right away, just on New Year's Eve, like, you, you know, or day you heard about it, and it just resonated throughout. How did it change you and what you were doing in the Highland Park area in, in L.A.? I think a lot of Chicanos were dealing with our own, you know, Chicano movement, but also, like, learning from the Black Power movement. And in the U.S., when... The impact of what happened in Chiapas with the Zapatistas, like all of a sudden it brought this whole wave of the movement from the south up north. And and then it merged with what was happening from the east to the west. Just like it coalesced into this movement in L.A. And to me that was so powerful because it connected me back with my indigeneity. That empowered me a lot as well as other community members, and these were the discussions that were happening, right? So then at that, then we started getting more exposed to culture and going into ceremony and ritual, and then that was even more powerful. It was like almost like you felt like more connected to your heritage, basically, from this movement that was happening. And then also with like the artistic movement that was happening, like you had an ability to express it too. Well, the thing is, it's the bandwidth between innovation and tradition, right? And somehow you find yourself resonating between the two. Did you feel drawn? Because like, I feel like you, you mentioned like the almost like these two cultural waves coming from the South and the North. Did you feel that you wanted to gravitate towards one or the other? Was there like a pull towards Mexico and a pull maybe towards like Northern California? Um and where did you feel like you needed to go next to really participate in the movements that you were seeing and also to further your career um, as an artist? This kind of Chicano mantra has always, always like, oh, we're neither from here nor from there. But I always thought, but what if we were from there and from there? What if we're both? The only thing about hanging out with all these super hardcore politicized people and being an artist was that 
all my my dumb questions and my different way of thinking could often hinder <laughs> some movement because they just want like like slogans and like this is what we got to do to get here like don't don't make art for artsy and i'm like this isn't artsy fartsy like these are like legitimate questions or alternatives or like you know i'm trying to be visionary here like i'm trying to find like a whole other way of thinking and so and that's where i started kind of moving away from that era of my life with Renaissance. And so later on, like more of the hardcore activists moved in and they're like, get out of the way, artists. Like, let us do the real work that needs to be done, you know? And I was like, cool, okay. Well, I'm, I'm on to something else because, you know, I, I want to do ridiculous things. I moved up to Berkeley. That's where uh, there I was organizing. I was doing some really cool events with, uh, you know, the the young black community there and the brown community. And we were mixing up like, you know, like jazz, doing shrooms and smoking pot and having these conversations and everything. And that kind of, I, I, I got introduced to Buddhism, went to some ceremonies, but after a while, like I, I ended up um, taking off on a spiritual run. I, I got introduced to Sweat Lodge, and that's when I really moved uh, uh, out of uh, Berkeley. Being introduced to the Sweat Lodge was very powerful for me. But there was Chicanos um, that were organizing there that that were connecting with their indigenous, uh, like the Dakota, Lakota, you know, uh, Dene people who were teaching them these ways. And so, you know, just to, to pray like in the dark, the earth, while you're wet with mud on you, like suffering a little bit with the heat of the steam, you know, because of the water hitting the, the elders, which are the stones. Like it was a different way of prayer that I was used to, like, in the church. It's always too antsy and just, like, never able to really, like, humble myself and to get into, you know, the the spirit. Because it wasn't as metaphoric anymore. It was more the real deal. Like, you're really suffering. Like, you're really, like, in the elements. So, yeah, you know. I did that, and then from there, when when I went, when I found out about the Peace and Dignity Journeys, which was a run from Tierra del Fuego, Chile, to and where they would start from Tierra del Fuego, Chile, and Alaska, and then meet at the pyramids of Teotihuacan. That was incredible to me, and it was all people being hosted by different indigenous communities as they made their way to, uh, you know, for. Uh, four days of ceremony at the pyramids. Like it was incredible that people had, or you know, indigenous communities had organized this, you know, on their own without any type of like corporate or state grants or anything. You know, it's totally like just community uh, driven. And so I did that, and I had always run as a little kid, so to touch to connect back with the running and the land hardworking people in different communities, you know, people that were traditionals, people that were more working with the law, 
but a lot of dancers, traditional dancers, a lot of ceremonies that like leaders that were just that they they changed their regalia as we traveled. You know, you would see how it would change because of the land and their culture. So what were what kind of art were you doing at this time as you were getting all this inspiration? I was doing a lot of drawing and sketchbooks. I was uh, putting flowers in my hair, painting my body up with mud as I ran through the you know, streets, you know, as, as we're running. Um, I had shaved my head and I had jaguar spots dyed on my head, which kind of tripped a lot of the people out. Um, so it was, you know, and then I would do a lot of portraits of, of people and give them away. I was, phot- I was photographing a lot of things here and there. Um, and then also, you know, I would like place flowers on, on myself, you know, depending on the community and what they gifted us, you know, or you would put mud from the desert over your body. And, um, I had this, I was gifted this beautiful neck, kind of a necklace of red feathers from this medicine woman in Hawaii. And I remember when I would run and sweat, the, the red dye would just come all like down my body. You know, people would trip out at us when we were just running into their communities. And, and at the same time, we're also carrying these staffs that were gifted to us from different communities throughout the continent. Yeah, so aesthetically it was beautiful. Then we would run in and then we would have to be saged down and then enter the ceremony. And so it was very powerful. Wow. So like coming out of that experience, what did it change about the trajectory of your life? I mean, it it seems like you're over time becoming more and more connected to your roots. And like you're seeking out these experiences and these ways of showing your identity, revealing your identity of the world, you're seeking out these experiences more. I realized that being an artist was uh, my medicine. In Mexico, they always say that it's, uh, oh, eres un artista, es un don. Like, oh, you're an artist, that's a gift. And with that gift comes a responsibility, right? So I always looked at being an artist as just like, this is my, my forte, this is my gift. How do I use it to help people, you know, to teach, to humor people, maybe, maybe like I, I like to teach in a lighthearted way sometimes, Yeah. Uh, whatever resonates. Right. And so, you know, I, I had that consciousness yet living after the run was completed and I moved back to LA like you start thinking like, well, how do, how do I keep making a living being an artist? And very often I could not get certain projects or teaching positions because I did not have a degree. I started noticing that these other artists in my community were getting these opportunities that I, I just couldn't, even though I was doing very similar work. If not, I thought even better work. But you felt like there was some ceiling put on you just because you didn't have a degree? Yeah, it's like I don't come from money. I'm a brown man, you know, Mexican man, trying to make it as an artist, making social political work. So it was like a hard one, you know, and on yeah. top of that, without a degree, a BFA nor a master's degree, I had a lot, uh, you know, uh, against me. And so I had to, you know, really just 
touch base and connect. You know, I was connecting with new artists as, as your community grows. You meet certain artists that have gone to art school and friends of mine that hadn't gone to art school that later on do go, like a friend of mine, uh, Patricia Valencia, who went to UCLA for art. And then, uh, you know, I asked her, so what's up? Well, what's with this art school thing? Like, and she was, she told me, well, it's, it's just, it's a language. It's a language that you need to learn. And uh, that's what I ended up going to Otis College of Art and Design. And uh, I transferred in, you know, and, and I uh, I got a BFA in sculpture and new genres there. What was the the school of design like compared to just like, I mean, you were you had done so much on your own up to that point. So what was it like being at a design school? I thought it was like a club med for artists. I couldn't believe how much was available to me. I also felt like I had to humble out to learn and to use this time as a student to the fullest. So I had to drop a lot of my ego also. And I had to learn this new terminology in order to insert my practice into the canon. If not, I was always going to be an outlier. And I knew that uh, my work was just as valid and I deserved to be at the table like all these other students. And also that I came from a working class background and that my dad had dedicated his whole life for me to be in this position and I was not going to let it go to waste. So I was on fire, man. I, I was I was there on a mission. And, uh, you know, I had two of the biggest scholarships that Otis offered. Wow. And, and when it was time to do a studio visit, you know, and you had to sign up for whatever guest artist was doing a lecture, like I was first in line, you know, so I, I really wanted to uh, just have those, like, understand those two worlds, right? You know, the Western world and the Mesoamerican world, and to be able to uh, use the two to establish uh, a career. Where did you feel like you were? in terms of establishing that career, in terms of uh, understanding that world? Well, after I got my, my BFA, I, I still felt like I was half-baked because you still couldn't really get the good jobs unless you had an MFA. So I took about a year off, and then I was asked if I want to go back to graduate school. They gave me a good scholarship again, so I went to study under Suzanne Lacey and uh, the public practice program at Otis. And so I really enjoyed the MFA program because it's a lot about smaller cohort and having deeper conversation. I think that's the most powerful thing about a graduate degree or program. A strong one is that they give you those two years to develop your thoughts and to actually write them down. So what did you actually start like making once you left? I began to better develop this archetype of a trickster named Tochli Seven, the Aztec Bunny, and doing performances that were out in the streets, that were confronting people that weren't there for an art experience, and I would put them into this situation. What was the situation that you put them in? I would uh, climb a rope ladder that was kind of like a theme park rope ladder and just try to see if I could do it. I became like a mascot for the people, like trying to get them to chat. And, but for <laughs> me, that rope was like crossing the border. One piece that I did that was really incredible was I was asked to go to Mexico and they had a, an artist for every state in Mexico to do a performance or to do a sculpture. And so I was the only Chicano to represent the Chicanos. And so for four days, I performed 
the bunny trying to cross the border. So I, I was following these carrots on a rope and I kept jumping and jumping trying to get them as this one guy kept pulling them away and this one time I jumped so far that when I landed the impact was so strong that my arm popped out of my socket and I I screamed like so hard that I was screaming so loud that you know that I had these camera crews that were filming me (laughs) and and so they they cut the performance but I knew that I had to keep performing because this whole piece was in commemoration of people that cross the border every day and things like that happen all the time. So how could I stop? So at the end, we had carrot cake and carrot juice and yeah. everyone wrote a name of a loved one who had crossed the border. You know, and, and we had a little bunny mask for them. Well, it seems also like a way of life. Like you're, I mean, the, the what's cool about some of these performance pieces is it's like you're you're creating and living in these worlds, and you're also like doing so many of these. I'm looking at like the list of your work right now, and it's like massive. <laughs> I'm wondering, like you know, some of these pieces, like like what stands out as most like relevant or 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 impactful to you as you know we go towards what you're doing now like i know you did uh there's there's a vice piece on you recently um or in 2020 like, i think it was like do it for kobe <laughs> well that piece was amazing because uh you know it's called do it for kobe because i i just when 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 kobe died like oh like city was the world you know like so many people it's just so devastated and you see all the thousands of murals that came out and he was so much to so many people and my whole thing was we'll take the prayers of the people up to the top of the hill and let them go, you know, to the gods. So they did a full-on interview in my studio in Echo Park at the time. And then from there, they were going to come with me to, to do the performance in El Sereno, which was where I grew up. Where as a kid, I would run those hills, you know, and cross-country practice. So it was a very deep, like, coming home. And then it was venerating, giving thanks in that way back to, you know, those prayers to the hills. And so we carried a helium tank to the top of the hill and then I tied feathers pieces of obsidian stone and like little tidy pieces like and and little little sacred objects onto these balloons (laughs) that we would you know like fill them up and then let them go you know at the top of the hill and, and send them off to the gods you know it was a really powerful piece you know you know if you get a chance to check it out then you'll know what I'm talking about just the aesthetics of it right the aesthetics are beautiful so, I mean, you've had like such like cool impact with so many of the projects you've done. In terms of today, like how would you describe what you make and what you're trying to share with the world? And what are you working on that you're most excited about? After a lot of scrutiny and pondering and really thinking, like I have really been thinking about how I am the art. I want to recreate myself, my body, my being. Right now, like I said, I, I, I want to recreate myself in, in a capitalist Western culture. Like you have to define what is your success. So bringing it all back around, it's like you have to locate your values and then people are going to congregate with others that share the same values. And then in that way, you create community. I have a performance coming up where I'm, I'm having the calling to become a horse. <laughs> so... I'm going to do a performance in the ocean with a horse and a chair. That's the that's the thing I've been thinking about called Swept Away. And I'm doing a lot of teaching at Otis, you know, and I teach youth 
uh, I'm learning a lot more about Coyote Trickster Tales. I'm doing my own little movies. A lot of storytelling. You're doing a lot. I and like. I guess like dwelling on the teaching a little bit. Like, if you were to give advice to someone who wanted to become an artist, what advice would you give based on your life experience so far? It can't be a foil for something else. Be on top of it. Be professional. It's also very competitive. So you have to empower yourself and know what you're entering into within contemporary art. You know, like you have to love doing it. A lot of it is your calling and you are what you do. So if you do art all the time, yeah, you're an artist. So much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Berkel, Matt Fernandez, Nay Buchanan, Sophia Donner, David Saidi, Ashley Jimenez, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong. With support from Sarah Hobson, Cherise Tan, Harushi Kanauchi, Kristen Hagelin, Aya Cortez, and Valencia Lu. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Aiden Ashworth, Nikki Mikawa, Sylvie Wong, and Eric Mena. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Tiffany Dang, Yao Lil, and Dina Gabriel. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>